It's Monday, April the 12th, 2021. 790 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we're looking at vaccine hesitancy. All adults in America are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine, but around a third of them say they don't want one. Getting society back to normal will require those sceptics to change their minds. Hi, Natasha. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine. I've been uh, struggling to keep up with the AstraZeneca story again this week. And we've just learned that both the European Medicines Agency and the British equivalent now feel that there is evidence of links between some rare blood clots and the AstraZeneca vaccine. So that's caused some changes in policy about what age groups should receive it. Yeah, as if there wasn't enough to keep up with. That has been quite confusing. We'll go into all of that actually in the later in the show because I think it's worth discussing w- what those regulators actually said and then what we know about um, how you monitor for things like rare side effects of pharmaceuticals. Later on, we'll also hear from Heidi Larson from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She's the founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project. And we'll also hear from Crystal Sun of Civis Analytics, a data science firm that works on honing messages to vaccine sceptics. Also joining us today is Ed Carr. He's the deputy editor at The Economist and he oversees the paper's COVID coverage. Hello, Ed. How are you today? Hi, Alok. I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. What, what always ask you the hardest question at the beginning. What do you say is the biggest challenge in tackling vaccine hesitancy? Well, I'd say that you're dealing with lots of different things at once. So on the one hand, this is a new disease with new vaccines that you're trying to understand. And so that involves lots of really difficult science and difficult scientific concepts. At the same time, you're trying to persuade people who come from lots of different groups with different views of the world to do something that is unfamiliar. And to top it all, you try to do it in rapid time, super quick, while the disease is continuing to spread. It's a very hard needle to thread. Sasha, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't have put it better myself. I think the time issue is a key one, isn't it? Given all these different outlooks on the world, if we had four or five years, we would have the time to patiently meet everyone exactly where they are and explain to them why they might want to take this vaccine. But we're not. We're trying to do this at great speed. And that's a challenge. It is a challenge and something we still have to sort of work out. Now, next week, all American adults will be eligible for vaccination. My message today is a simple one. Many states have already opened up to all adults. But beginning April 19th, every adult in every state, every adult in this country is eligible to get in line to get a COVID vaccination. The trouble is, roughly a third of Americans say they don't want a COVID vaccination. With around 3 million vaccinations administered every day in the country, 
America will soon enter a new phase in the pandemic. There'll no longer be a shortage of jabs, but there could soon be a shortage of arms in which to put them. If the country is to reach herd immunity, persuading vaccine-hesitant people to get inoculated will be critical. Hi, my name is Crystal Sun, and I'm the Director of Healthcare Analytics at Civis Analytics. We're a data science company based in Chicago here in the U.S. Crystal Sun has been looking into the kind of messaging that works best at convincing people to get the jab. We've been tracking people's willingness to get a COVID-19 vaccine over the last year, and our latest data tell us that hesitation is highest among Black respondents, people with a high school diploma or less, people who are 18 to 34 years of age, respondents who make under $50,000 in income, and people who live in rural areas. The good news is that even since just December, we're seeing willingness to take the vaccine go up across the population. One group in particular that we've seen a lot more interest and willingness in has been the elderly population or people who are 65 years of age or older. And do we know what the reasons are for these these forms of hesitancy? So there's definitely not one single reason for people um, that people give for being hesitant that applies to everyone who is hesitant. But some common reasons that people give are that they're concerned about the safety of the vaccine, especially since this is the first time in all of history that any vaccines have been brought to the market so fast. They're distrustful in the government. That's another factor that is especially important for Black Americans. Um, We think that's because they can point to a history in the U.S. of being deceived by the government for the purposes of public health. Another common reason is that people aren't as concerned about the risks of contracting the virus. Um, So the benefit of taking a vaccine to them doesn't outweigh the risks or even just the inconveniences of getting vaccinated. And then lastly, still a very common reason that people give is that they believe that the vaccines simply don't work. They don't believe that it's effective at protecting them from illness or from death. Okay, so once we know who wants to take the vaccine and who doesn't, um, what do we do with that information? How can we persuade people who are hesitant to move into the, uh, the confident camp? A lot of the messaging strategies have been based off of prior experience. So um, many organizations have said, like, this is what we've tried for flu vaccine campaigns. So let's try it for covid What we found is that COVID is a very different type of thing when you're talking about messaging. Um, Messages like, you know, getting the vaccine because it helps protect your community, helps protect people who are more vulnerable to the risks of COVID than you are. Um, Those types of altruistic messages were very effective for flu, for persuading people to get the the flu vaccine. For COVID, we don't see that. Um, We see that messages about the personal benefit are much more effective. The other thing is that messages about how safe the vaccine are don't tend to be very effective, which is a surprising thing because if you look at survey data, Many respondents will say that their biggest reason for not getting vaccinated is because they're concerned about side effects and safety. But the way that we do it in a randomized controlled trial, testing each different way of talking to audiences, we find that talking about safety is at best ineffective and at worst, it can actually cause negative backlash. 
So if you if you saddle people with too much clinical trial information and numbers, it potentially could put people off. Do we know why? Well, I think there could be two things going on here. One is that in a survey instrument, um, people will say that safety is their biggest concern. But we what we know from both public health messaging research as well as other industry research um, is that people are very poor at identifying what is going to be the most persuasive message for them. They may say this is the the most important topic. This is the one topic that if somebody addressed that, I would be convinced to buy that product or vote for that candidate. But when we test independently um, from that survey, we find that that's not usually the, the thing that moves them the most. Natasha, I think it's worth defining a few things here. What every country wants to get to with vaccines is herd immunity. Anthony Fauci, when he spoke to us on this podcast, said that for that to happen in the US, you need to vaccinate something like 70 to 85% of the population. Now, if it's true that something like a third or a quarter of the population in the US don't want to take vaccines, there's a tension there, right? There's a tension between uh, getting to herd immunity and the number of people who actually want to take vaccines. Um, what is herd immunity? Why are we sort of so keen about that? Well, the idea of herd immunity is when you have enough people in a population who are resistant to an infection that it just doesn't spread. And that immunity can come from natural infection as well as from vaccinations. I mean, Fauci was talking about those numbers, but to be fair, I don't think anyone really knows how many people we have to vaccinate to reach herd immunity. And there's also quite a few complicating factors as well, like you know, the variants, and also the fact that we don't really know how durable these vaccines are going to be. And although they look like they're going to be quite durable in some people, they're not going to be durable in others. And until we have a good picture of that, I don't think it's clear that we can get to herd immunity. I don't want to sound like a wet blanket, but let's just be realistic here. And Ed, you know, in terms of what parts of society are most likely to experience vaccine hesitancy, we heard Crystal Sun talk about um, members of the black community, people who earn less than $50,000, others like that. I mean, are they the kinds of groups that you're also hearing about? Yes, there's just, just so many ways you can cut this in terms of education, income. There are the kinds of jobs that people do. There are their political parties. I mean, you know, it's it's a kind of pollster's dream. You can find correlations all over the place. And I think this matters because the other thing that came across really well from Crystal, I think, was how hard it is to get the right message. So the first thing is understanding what sorts of people you're talking to, and then it is tailoring a message for them. And it's worth thinking that there are just lots and lots of different correlations here. And you might need to find that you need to be just as complex and subtle in your messaging in order to kind of get to those groups. You, you shouldn't be too coarse in the way you, you, you break up populations, I think. I'm, I'm curious to know what both of you think about the challenge of getting to herd immunity, getting to this point where community transmission is not such a big issue if, you know, there is a resistant group of people that never let us get there. Yeah, I think inevitably these hesitant groups are going to have an impact on whether we can reach herd immunity. That's just the nature of it. We don't know how hesitant a society has to be because we don't know what that level is yet. But we're going to find out and it won't take long to find out, you know, countries like Israel, countries like Brazil, they've had a very high rate of uptake. And, you know, we'll start to see, won't we? 
I think it's interesting also that that you know Crystal mentioned that 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 people feel less scared of the disease now, and the polling does show that that compared with this time last year, fears certainly that this is the Gallup poll suggests that fears have gone down from about fifty seven percent being worried about catching disease to down to thirty five percent. Well, as it falls, you know you might think well. I might sit this one out, wait to see how the vaccine works. I've heard about this AstraZeneca vaccine causing clots. You know, maybe I can afford to sit and wait for a bit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Ed. I think that's absolutely right because fear is one of the biggest motivating factors for getting vaccinated right now. Uh, Fear for oneself, fear for one's um, close relations. And, you know, in Britain and in Israel, as our societies are opening up and we have done really well with vaccinations, the question is, well, if there isn't a threat there, why would you want to get vaccinated? This is a question that is going to trouble countries like Australia and New Zealand as well. They don't have this threat, this fear. How are they going to convince people that they need to get vaccinated? That's a really good point. And we'll come back to all of this um, later in the programme as well. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, you'll need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejampod. A story that I found interesting recently was how Bhutan, the tiny Asian nation, has managed to vaccinate 85% of its adult populations in just a week. The country got its first vaccines in January, but decided to wait for a more auspicious time, as advised by its Buddhist monks, to actually start jabbing people. When they started to actually do the vaccinations, they turned the whole thing into a lively national event. Only two other countries, Israel and the Seychelles, have vaccinated a higher proportion of people. It's an amazing story. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. Vaccine hesitancy has been around for as long as vaccines have existed. Hardcore anti-vaxxers tend to get most of the attention. These are people who won't get a jab under any circumstance. But vaccine hesitancy is a much more nuanced phenomenon. Some people are worried, not opposed. Other people just reject specific vaccines while accepting others. And many hesitant people can actually overcome their reservations. A lot of the themes in terms of reasons for vaccine hesitancy are quite universal. Concerns about liberties and freedoms and not being kind of controlled. Heidi Larson has spent a lot of time looking into this issue. She's an anthropologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and also the founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project. That goes back to the very first anti-vaccine movement, which was in the UK. There was only one vaccine at the time, and this was in the late 1800s or mid-1800s, when the smallpox vaccine was introduced. And when the vaccine was introduced, the real resistance came when the government put uh, a mandate that everyone needed to take it. And that coercion, that felt coercion prompted the organization of an anti-compulsory vaccine league. And can you see that sort of vaccine hesitancy in movements today as well? When I've recently seen photographs of some of the protests, anti-lockdown protests in Manchester and Leicester and London, I mean, it you could very much turn those photographs 
into black and white or make them into etchings, and it would look not too different from the late 1800s. It was against this notion of government control. How fluid is the skepticism for something like the COVID-19 vaccine? It's very. People constantly look at what's the threat of the disease, my vulnerability versus the risk of a new vaccine. I mean, I think we don't give the public enough credit that sometimes they're actually making reasonable, weighing reasonable options and concerns. With the announcement of initially the Pfizer vaccine at 95% efficacy, that was a boost of confidence. And then in the face of a second, pretty bad second wave in the winter, the willingness to take a vaccine did go up. But in the past um, month, particularly around the news around the various reported risks with AstraZeneca, uh, some confidence has dropped. But more specific to that vaccine, they're not rejecting COVID vaccines more broadly. Well, what would we do then when a particular vaccine has some negative press around it. For example, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been linked, although the the link hasn't been proven, to blood clots. And that research is still ongoing. And of course, we can tell people that new medicines will always have unknown questions around them. But once that is in there in the public consciousness, what can we do to sort of counteract it? There are a couple of things. One, you want to make sure that it doesn't start to affect COVID vaccines more broadly. I think we need to be transparent. Public health and health authorities are always anxious to say too much about risks. But if you don't say enough about risks, the public just will not trust you because eventually they're going to find out what the risks are and then they'll feel like you didn't tell us the truth. That will break confidence. So there's going to be a very important time of being honest with the public. If they see that we're as health authorities, as safety regulators, uh, we're being straightforward and honest with them around the uncertainty, that actually can breed more trust more broadly. Is it hard, though, to reverse negative perceptions if, if they've started to, uh, to occur? Absolutely. It's it's a lot more work, um, which is why, you know, it's important to try to be building confidence in vaccines when you're not in the middle of a confidence crisis, it certainly is more difficult. I mean, I, I do think that we have the the luxury, as it were, of m- multiple vaccines. We have supply constraints right now, but there are alternatives while we resolve the current um, issues and, and get a clear picture on the risks. Natasha, it's probably worth discussing the AstraZeneca situation just um, in a bit more detail now. Um, What's happened this week um, with that vaccine and blood clots? It's probably worth taking a step back. When we do trials on vaccines, they're tested in tens of thousands of people. And that's a really good sample size. But you can't pick up if there are really rare reactions that affect, say, one in a hundred thousand or one in a million. And the only way of picking up things like that is when you have a sort of good drug monitoring system so that when a drug is introduced, you look at the adverse reactions that are reported. And in fact, the first 
news we had of any problems actually were allergic reactions with the Pfizer vaccine. But on April the 7th, it became much clearer that there seems to be a connection between some rare blood clots and the AstraZeneca vaccine. And they're so rare that it was quite difficult at first to really sort of pick them up above the background level of blood clots that you will get, because of course, people are going about their lives having blood clots. But one of the sort of distinguishing features of these clots was um, that you have quite low platelet counts. And so it was quite an unusual sort of clot. Now they've identified it, it is of course something that you could treat if it's picked up early enough. But, you know, the long and short of it is that for younger people, the prevalence of the clots is slightly higher, but also their risk of COVID is lower. And so a lot of countries are now looking at the vaccine and sort of saying, well, maybe for younger people, we would want to give them a different vaccine. For older people, the risk benefit is still absolutely massively in favour of having, having the vaccine, because not only are you far less likely to have a clot, you're also far more risk from COVID. Yeah, and so the European regulator has listed very rare blood clots as an official side, a rare side effect of the this vaccine. But Ed, how does this, even with the vanishingly rare side effect, even with the fact that the scientists who talked about it in the press conferences, they did it very carefully and they didn't want to scare anybody. How does this affect confidence uh, for people with vaccines in general? I've been really interested by some numbers put out by the Winton Centre at Cambridge that have tried to look at the kind of comparable risks of getting a really bad dose of COVID and suffering because you've been vaccinated. And that risk depends on your age and the sort of person, you know, whether you've got comorbidities and things like that. And it also depends on how prevalent the virus is, because obviously if there's lots of virus around, you're more likely to get COVID. And I think it's, it is worth just plucking out a couple of numbers from their study just to give a sense of the relative risks. If you've got sort of quite a lot of virus around or a lot of virus, so this, we're talking about levels of virus that you had in Britain at the, towards the beginning of the year through to February, and you're in your 50s, then you're 100 times more likely to be admitted to intensive care with COVID than you are with a blood clot. So it gives you a sort of sense of the risk that, in fact, even if you are in your 30s, you're 10 times more likely if it's just sort of moderate amounts of COVID around. And it does give you a sense that these risks are, are kind of there. But having said that, I think we have to go back to what Crystal was saying earlier, that people play strange games with with calculations like this. Risks that, that we take every day become very, very blase. I mean, I hate to confess this, but I put on quite a lot of weight during lockdown. And being the age group I am in my 50s, I suspect my risk of heart attack and stroke have gone up considerably. But what have I done about that? I've just opened another chocolate bar and sort of gone <laughs> on with living. I haven't, I haven't done anything about it. And yet I think, you know, the, this idea of an injection and taking on a risk, it, it sort of just frames that risk completely differently. And so I think it's really, really hard to communicate those relative risks and, and to try and get people to to balance them out. N- Natasha, I don't want to sort of uh, um, put words in your mouth, but I think Ed looks great. He looks you? fantastic. He, 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 looks, <laughs> he looks fantastic. You're only seeing me from the, from the chest up, Alok. The other thing I wanted to raise with you, Natasha, is that you know this is a science journalism 101. People are bad. The general public is bad at numbers and risks, right? This is what we always bang our heads against. Um, any risk you take where you've made the decision 
to take that risk feels very different from one that is or feels imposed upon you. And so if people feel they're obligated to get the vaccine and it has a risk, they will, I think, feel differently about it from, you know, a risk where, you know, say you decide to cycle to a friend's house where that's something that you want to do and you know that there's a risk involved. You know, if you frame this question, do I get a vaccine or not get a vaccine? And the only one on offer is AstraZeneca then I think people probably, you know, particularly if they felt that the disease was around them, I, I imagine people would do that. But but actually, is that really what people are thinking? Are people saying, well, you know what, I'd rather not have AstraZeneca because I think that the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines are, are better and I just have to wait a little bit and I'll get one of those. It's going to depend which country you're in. And it's like we're having this conversation in the UK where there's a range of vaccines. You know, what really worries me as what it's going to have, the impact it's going to have across Africa, for example, where, um, you know, they're trying to vaccinate healthcare workers, for example, who are younger, and they've just got the AstraZeneca vaccine mainly. And it's like, well, that's kind of, for me, where the rubber hits the road, if you like. In America, a group that's particularly hesitant to take vaccines is white evangelical Republicans. Evangelicals make up about a quarter of America's population. Persuading them to take vaccines will be a necessary step in the country's aim to reach herd immunity. Polls show that Republican men have most reservations. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has called on them to take the jab. I can stand here as a Republican man. As soon as it was my turn, I took the vaccine. I would encourage all Republican uh, men to do that. So overall, we're seeing a lot of hesitancy among white Republicans, white Republican men, and specifically among white evangelicals. Tamara Jilks-Bohr is The Economist's US policy correspondent. There's a lot of overlap between evangelicals and Republicans. About 80% of evangelicals voted for President Trump in 2016 and 2020. And how hesitant are they? So just over half, about 54% of white evangelicals, said they were likely to get vaccinated, according to Pew Research in March. And for perspective, about 69% of Americans said they would get the vaccine or already have. And 72% of white non-evangelicals said they would get vaccinated or already have. Do we know why the the vaccine hesitancy um, is like this in this community? So it's complicated, but there's two main buckets. First, it's politics and then religion. So we all remember that former President Donald Trump refused to issue strong guidance about COVID, particularly mask wearing and social distancing. And this has had a big impact on Republican behavior. So, for example, a study using data of over 15 million smartphones per day found that Republicans were less likely to comply with COVID recommendations. And there's two main issues in terms of the religious concerns about the vaccine. Some evangelicals are citing concerns about the connection between the vaccine and abortion. So in reality, the vaccine was developed using cells from aborted fetal tissue. But the myth is that the vaccine somehow recently used aborted fetuses for development or somehow requires continual abortions, which is not true. And so what's the second major reason for these Christians not to, not to want to take the vaccine? The second is this concern about the mark of the beast. So there's a biblical story in the book of Revelation that describes the end of days. And in this biblical story, a beast will confuse people so that they worship him rather than God. 
and he will force his mark on people. And some evangelicals are concerned that the vaccine, and in some cases, even masks, are this mark known as the mark of the beast. And have there been any efforts to try and shift this and persuade white Republicans, um, evangelicals to, you know, take the vaccine and, and, and do what's necessary to, to reach, for the country to reach herd immunity? Yes, definitely. So similarly to what's been done to help with Black vaccine skepticism, there have been two main approaches. One is to reach, uh, reach out to trusted leaders, and the second is education broadly. So within the evangelical community, we have seen leaders come out and encourage their congregations to get vaccinated via social media and in churches. So Reverend Franklin Graham, the son of late Reverend Billy Graham, even told his fellow evangelical Christians to get vaccinated. I just wonder, you know, there have been strategies to do all of this, but in your reporting, do you see any signs of it actually working? Unfortunately, no. And one professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University, who is also a pastor, had an interesting perspective on this. He thinks that evangelicals are straying, and Republicans in general are straying from their original, more moderate leadership. And this is causing a bit of a concern and making it more difficult for hesitancy to be solved as a problem. So in general, evangelicals stray from the idea that the average person needs to have a mediator to God like the Pope in the Catholic denomination, for example. So while leaders like Franklin Graham can tell their fellow uh, evangelical Christians to get the vaccine, there is this inherent individualism within the evangelical faith that really prevents that message from getting through. And in fact, according to Burge, there's a deep skepticism of authority within the church. So how does the country go about dealing with all this? It's very complicated and very concerning. And quite honestly, I do not think that top-down approaches are going to work, particularly if they're coming from the government. I do see some connections between my reporting on Black vaccine hesitancy and my experience as a Black American that I think could be used in this particular situation. So I remember overall during uh, much of the talk about Black vaccine hesitancy, feeling frustrated by how little of our concerns were really understood by public health officials and the media And I wanted more of a deep understanding of our concerns and the respectful approach of our concerns. And I think that that is also needed here for white evangelicals. I think we need to make sure that we pause, really think deeply about what is being said and reach out to this group respectfully and with our full concern. Natasha, Ed, I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but it sounds like the answer to persuading evangelicals or religious people in general is to have a pope of some sort uh, and have have an authority figure for them. Because evangelicals don't have one, they're less likely to believe in authority. I mean, how much of that is surprising to you both, uh, Natasha, Ed? Not really much of it. You know, if you're dealing with a community that is highly individualistic and also mistrustful of any authority figures, you may not be able to convince most of them to get vaccinated. But at the end of the day, we may just have to accept that you have to respect people's opinion about this. And what we're used to doing is vaccinating children. And so you're asking parents to make a decision on behalf of their children. And you can nudge people along by saying, well, they can't go to daycare and things like that. But when you're dealing with adults, it's just a different matter, isn't it? 
Ed, has vaccination just become another element of the culture war in the United States? It's definitely something that's been politicised. It's wearing masks or having vaccinations might be seen as the other tribe's thing to do. I think I think that's certainly true. And you can see, you know, most of all the variables that we've spoken about of race and education, Republicans and Democrats tend to poll differently on this. You said um, earlier something about sort of science and people's understanding of science. And, and I think what Tamara said has some, shed some light on that, because I think people who have their beliefs and are then are told, well, look at these statistics or look at this set of scientific results feel that you're you're just sort of brushing aside their beliefs. I I was quite struck when I was sort of thinking about this question of hesitancy. I went to a website um, called Christians and the Vaccine, which is run by a a guy called Curtis Chang, who's a pastor and and works at Duke Divinity School. And I looked at his sort of short film, which is entitled, Is COVID Vaccine the Mark of the Beast? And it's very striking that in that he does not talk about risks and science and, you know, mRNA vaccines. He talks about the Book of Revelations, which is where the mark of the beast comes from. And he gives a deep textual analysis of the nature of the scripture. And going on what Tamara said, he goes to, in other words, the source of authority and demonstrates to white evangelical Christians that the source of authority actually endorses them taking a vaccine. So it's a very smart I think, way of dealing with this and points some of the way forward. You have to go to people's sense of where their authority lies. And in this case, people's authority lies with the Bible rather than an authority figure. It lies with the Bible. It lies with people within their own communities, I suppose, as well. Either have had COVID or the vaccine itself, which might persuade them to go ahead and take it. I mean, this goes back back to our first interview with Crystal Sun. She was telling me also that, that it's not necessarily scientists who can persuade groups of people, hesitant people, to take vaccines. It's people who've had COVID themselves or people within your community. It's, it's pastors, it's your doctor, um, not not a far away doctor. So Anthony Fauci's not going to persuade people, but your own personal doctor might. He's uh, not going it, to persuade Republicans, I can tell you that. No, but also it's the sense uh, which I, I took away from Tamara's interview, which is that people just want to be listened to and they don't want to be dismissed. And I think that's entirely reasonable uh, from everything we've said here. You're asking people to... Yes, there is a responsibility to have the vaccine for the public good and all of that, but you can't dismiss people's feelings with this. And I think it would be churlish and and a, a retrograde step in our attempt to vaccinate the entire world to, to try and do that. At the same time, though, and I think what complicates that, I agree with you, but what complicates it is that a lot of the assessment of, of the risks and the reasons to take the vaccine and you know, who you direct the vaccine at, in the case of the AstraZeneca vaccine, do come from that exactly that kind of hard-headed, very numerical scientific assessment. So you're, you're so it's like thinking with two sides of your brain simultaneously. I struggle to think with one side of my brain, let alone both of them. <laughs> well, uh, to, let me wind up with t- t- by sharing a story from something that I, I know about. I mean, uh, the one thing that anthropological research shows us about science communication, if and this is getting very nerdy now, is that you don't solve problems about science communication by telling people more science. It just It's just been shown again and again and again. Scientists think that if you just tell people the stats, if you tell people the numbers, that the rest of the world will just go, oh, of course, yes, I, I get that. And, and they'll just fall into line. Well, actually, 
to understand scientific things, you have to have a lot of training and you have to have spent a lot of time doing scientific degrees, perhaps advanced degrees, PhDs, etc. And that is a particular way of thinking about the world that has been very beneficial and, you know, we can all support. But that's not how most of the world thinks about the world. The scientists think that more science is the answer. And I think that what Tamara's reporting shows, Crystal's surveys show as well, is that time and again, we prove that that's not the answer when it comes to persuading people about very complicated technological scientific things. I was going to say, this should be familiar to us because it's exactly the same with economists. I mean, if you tell people <laughs> that the economic model is this and the economists say you should behave like that, they, they normally walk away. Uh, so it's very similar. I think we've always really suspected that um, economists are not really scientists, haven't we? Um, thank you. Thank you both very much. Now, just before we go, Ed, Natasha, is there anything you've seen this week that you'd like to share? Yeah, I was struck by a piece in the New York Times from China, which wants to get 560 million people vaccinated by the end of June. And, uh, you know, China here, a one-party state, authoritarian government, they're using all sorts of things like buy one, get one free ice creams, uh, discounts on wedding photographs, 10% discounts on tea. So I I think quite a lot of carrot, although the article did also suggest there were a few rather unpleasant sticks being given away. But maybe there's something there for us. We haven't discussed carrots enough, actually. All of the discussion has been about the public good and everything, but more ice cream is definitely a solution, surely. I endorse it. Natasha? Well, I've been really amused at how folks who've been getting vaccinated um, have been poking fun at some of the nuttier conspiracy theories. And you've got this one conspiracy theory that if you get vaccinated, you're microchipped and tracked by Bill Gates. And then there's this other conspiracy theory, which is that 5G causes COVID. And so on social media now, people who are getting their vaccines are now joking that they can finally get 5G on their phones, um, which I think is quite funny. Maybe that's true. <laughs> Maybe that's it's, true. It could be true. Get a vaccine, get 5G. I like your tinfoil hat, uh, <laughs> Natasha. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Alok. that's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designers are Carla Patella and Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll focus on the mess of the vaccine rollout in the European Union.